Mental Exhaustion Podcast presented by ITL Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. On this podcast, we'll be doing interviews, reviewing products and workouts, talking about training philosophy, previewing races, and generally discussing issues of interest to the local, national, and international endurance community. Before we get started this week, I want to say thanks to all the people who downloaded the podcast and checked in on the blog and liked the page on Facebook. I appreciate your listening last week, and I appreciate all of your support. This week in sports, we saw the story of John Scott. John Scott's a Canadian hockey player in his mid-30s. He's bounced around to a lot of different teams over the course of the past 10 years or so. He's an enforcer. He's the sort of person that doesn't make the really graceful goals, but rather goes out on the ice and gets into a fight. He's not the sort of person that normally gets elected to play in the NHL All-Star Game. But he did this year. Uh, This year, the NHL changed up their format a little bit, and they opened up their voting to fans on the internet. And a large social media campaign was launched to try and elect John Scott to be in the NHL All-Star Game. Uh, People put it on Reddit, people put it on Facebook, people put it on Twitter, and ultimately... John Scott from the Arizona Coyotes ended up getting more votes to be on an NHL All-Star team than any other player in the NHL. Um, The NHL therefore not only put him on one of the teams, but they also made him the captain of the team. Um, Now, there's a lot of people, a lot of conservative elements inside the NHL, maybe some conservative fans of the sport, that felt like it wasn't quite right that he was named to the All-Star team. They felt that there were more deserving players, uh, more traditional skill players, who would be better representatives of the NHL if they were named to the All-Star team. And so a lot of people put pressure on him to not accept his spot, to not actually play in the games. He wrote, he said that sometime around mid-January, and a representative from the NHL actually came to his house and asked him to give up his spot on the team and, of course, renounce his captainship. That representative from the NHL went so far as to say, think about your daughter. Uh, John Scott has a nine-year-old daughter. Think about your daughter and how she would feel and how she's going to be embarrassed if you're actually out on the ice. Now, it had the opposite effect on John Scott. It increased his resolve that, in fact, he was going to play uh, in the All-Star game. He played his team one He scored two goals in the All-Star game itself, or in one of the All-Star games itself. Uh, And as a result, he was actually named All-Star game MVP. Um, That's an incredible accomplishment for any player in any sport to be named the MVP of their sports All-Star game. But it's particularly sweet uh, for people who don't normally get elected to play in the All-Star game in the first place. John Scott was an enforcer, um, and yet now he's going to have his helmet in the museum for the NHL Hall of Fame. Uh, That got me thinking about what motivates a lot of our biggest achievements, Uh, and it reminded me about some recent research that I wanted to share. I wanted to look into it a little bit more, and I wanted to think about how it actually applies to our lives here in endurance sports. Um, It's actually marketing research. It's about rewards and marketing. There was a professor from INSEAD, uh, which is an international business school that has campuses all over the world, a professor from INSEAD in Singapore. Um, She got her PhD from Stanford. Uh, She studies rewards and marketing. Her name is Monica Wadwa. Uh, In 2015, she wanted to see what would happen when people barely missed their goals. Uh, And so she put together a study in which various people played video games. And in those video games, there are three possible outcomes. They, were, of course, were all rigged. The first one would be, would be that you lose badly. The second one would be that you would win fairly easily. And the third would be that you 
almost win. It had to do with uncovering diamonds. It was kind of the card sort of game, and it was like eight diamonds, and you got seven out of eight diamonds. Oh, you were so close. Um, How did that affect the motivation of those three different groups of people? And what she found is that the people who nearly won were more motivated to do the next task than the people who lost, and even than the people who won. She measured it by seeing how quickly they actually walked from one task to the next, and she found that the people who nearly won, didn't win, but nearly won, walked, they moved, they nearly ran uh, much more quickly to the next task than the people who clearly won and the people who clearly lost. Wadwa actually followed it up with a companion study, and in the companion study, she gave people lottery tickets when she was standing out in front of the mall. Uh, and with the lottery tickets, some people got all five numbers. Of course, they won. Some people got no numbers. And some people got four out of the five numbers. So again, some people almost won. Uh, and then they tracked the spending habits of the people once they went inside the mall. And they found that the people, once they went inside the mall, spent much more money if they had nearly won the lottery than they did if they had actually won the lottery um, or if they had completely lost the lottery. So the bottom line is that there's fuel in almost getting there. Um, there's a lot of reasons why this might be. There was a study that came out in 2009 uh, where they hooked up people to functional MRI machines, to brain scan machines, and they had them play slots. And they found that people playing slot machines had the same brain activity when they almost won as they did when they actually won. The same part of the brain lit up when they won uh, as it did when they almost won. The name of the study was Gambling Near Misses Enhance Motivation to Gamble and Recruit Win-Related Brain Circuitry. Win-Related Brain Circuitry. I thought that was kind of fun. Um, But anyway, whatever the reason happens to be, uh, we see this a lot, I think, in sports where people are motivated and more driven and end up achieving more because they didn't quite get what they wanted the first time around. Everybody's heard the story about how Michael Jordan didn't make the varsity basketball team when he was a sophomore in high school and then, of course, went on to become Michael Jordan. Uh, Mark Allen, as many people inside the endurance sporting community knows, lost to Dave Scott several times in Kona before he went on to be himself a six-time Ironman world champion in Kona. Um, Dave Scott himself, as a matter of fact, had a lot of near misses in other sports before he landed on long course Ironman triathlon and made that sport his own. I think one of my favorite examples is of Dan Jansen. Dan Jansen uh, was a speed skater, uh, did mostly like the 500 meters and the 1,000 meters in uh, regular speed skating, not short track speed skating, but but long course, regular speed skating. Uh, and Dan Jansen uh, was one of the best skaters in the world throughout the late 1980s and early 1990s. Uh, went to the Olympics three times in 1988, 1992, and 1994. And throughout that stretch, he'd won no medals in 88. He won no medals in 92, but got significantly and progressively better throughout the time that he was trying to win Olympic medals. Uh, in 1994, he went to the games in Lillehammer, didn't win any medals in his first race, and then in his last Olympic race, uh, he ended up winning a gold medal. Um, closer to home, I think we've seen people that, that we coach and that we know, they almost qualify for Kona, or they fall short, just short of their Kona qualifying goal, and they redouble their efforts, and they're able to qualify the second time around. Uh, we see people who almost qualify for Boston, um, and they just miss it, and it inspires them more deeply to, to train again and, and to qualify readily the second time around. 
It's the same I've seen with people passing through barriers and running. They're trying to break a 430 mile or break a 20 minute 5K or break a 30 minute 10K or whatever it happens to be. I've seen it in the people I coach. I've seen it in myself. Um, Some of my most focused pursuits and my goals have been when things didn't go quite as planned the first time around. My first Ironman was not fantastic. My second one was much better. My first time in Kona was not great. My second time was much better. Um, So I'm hoping for that kind of redemption, that kind of redoubled drive uh, that we see in people who have near misses when I'm able to get back to training again over the course of the next few weeks. So as I mentioned, a lot of people reached out with questions and comments and clarifications and all sorts of things over the course of the past week or so based upon the stuff that went on in our first podcast. I wanted to address a few of those here in the second half of the podcast tonight. Uh, first of all, uh, there's an athlete from uh, Boulder, Colorado, who I happen to coach named Chris. And Chris asked, if all things being equal, which provider would I have chosen to get ESWT, to get electro- extracorporeal shockwave therapy? Um, you'll recall that I said last week that the recovery protocols were different, that the prices were different, um, that they had the same actual implementation protocol. They had the same high-frequency single-session protocol, um, but one... Uh, provider that I looked at had a different recovery protocol from the other. Um, And he said, all things being equal, the price had been the same, they would have had an appointment at the same time, uh, who would you have chosen? And I had to tell Chris that, to be honest, I wasn't entirely aware that they had different recovery protocols until the procedure was done and they were giving me my boot. Uh, when they were talking me through the various differences or the various things I needed to do, that's when I was able to spot the differences. Um, And it wasn't until then that I actually um, clued in that maybe I should have asked about the recovery protocol prior to actually getting the the procedure done. Um, By the way, I go back for my uh, four-week appointment later on this week, and so I'm looking forward to seeing what the outcome of that is. Um, An old friend of mine that I went to running camp with back in high school named Karen is a runner from Florida and a triathlete from Florida now. Uh, She listened to the podcast, and she referred to herself as a big-time prevented runner, uh, somebody who wants to be running but unfortunately can't be running right now because she's prevented by having an injury. Uh, Karen, I know just from following her on Facebook, has a tibial fracture, and she asked if ESWT would actually be effective in treating fractures. Uh, And my first thought was no. I thought that ESWT was something that was only used for scar tissue and for soft tissue injuries. In fact, I was totally wrong. Um, I found three different studies that said not only would it work for fractures, both fresh fractures and old fractures, um, but it actually has a very high success rate, um, 75-80%. What's more, there I mentioned last week how there's a lot of, or there's a lack of research about uh, the effectiveness of ESWT when it comes to uh, patellar tendonitis and Achilles tendonitis and shoulder injuries and elbow injuries and, of course, Achilles tendonitis because there's not an agreed-upon treatment protocol. Uh, but, in fact, there's a lot of uh, more specific research having to do with varying types of treatment protocols when it comes to using ESWT on bone. Uh, so, Karen, by all means, check that out. Um, I'm not trying to say it's, it's definitely going to fix it, but... Um, I tend to advocate a dartboard approach when it comes to injury, uh, that you throw anything at it and see what sticks. And so by all means, talk to your medical provider and see if this is a potential option. Um, The idea of harmonious passion resonated with a lot of people, uh, and I think it's worth reviewing that really quickly. Um, It's important to say that harmonious passion, this idea of having a harmonious passion towards your athletic pursuits, is a good thing. It means you have a healthy relationship with your sport. 
Um, it's part of a balanced life, and if you have harmonious passion, you'll be able to sustain your participation in your sport long term, and that's a good thing. A lot of people have harmonious passion for their sporting life. That's great. That's fantastic. That being said, there is one drawback of having a harmonious passion that you need to be aware of. Specifically, if you have a good relationship with your sport, if you have harmonious passion, you are likely to underestimate your susceptibility to injury, and in turn, you're less likely to take steps to protect yourself. So to be clear, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have harmonious passion. You should. But if you do, you should be aware that there's a link between harmonious passion and reckless behavior. If you have harmonious passion, then you're at risk for making bad decisions. And if you're aware of that tendency, perhaps you'll be a little bit more deliberate in your decision making. Um, There was one last question that I got a few times too, and that was actually about the name of the podcast, the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Uh, This was originally the name I, I set out for my blog when I started writing my blog several years ago. Um, but the name harkens back to an interview that was done with Emil Zadopek, the famous Czech runner from the 1950s. Now, Emil Zadopek was an inspirational figure in a lot of ways and an extremely influential figure in the running community. Um, first of all, he's the person who came up with the idea, essentially, of interval training. Um, he used to do repeat after repeat after repeat. He would do 5,400s in a single workout. Um, uh, he would do all sorts of things that today we would consider to be insane. He used to do 200-meter repeats, uh, and he would try and hold his breath for the entire half lap that he was sprinting. Um, he would go out with these big, huge, heavy army boots, and he would train in those. Um, he would put his wife on his back, and he'd run with his wife on his back in order to try and make himself stronger. Uh, when it would snow in Czechoslovakia, he was from Czechoslovakia, obviously, he would go out in the, the knee-high snow, and he would run in it because he said it four him to bring up his legs really, really, really high, and that made him stronger. And so he, in a lot of ways, was just a scientist of the sport. He used himself as a lab, and he experimented with all of these different training techniques, and I admire that, and I appreciate that so much. But really, the reason why he's remembered the most is because he did something, a feat, that no distance runner will ever do again. He, in the 1952 Olympics, won the 5,000 meters, the 10,000 meters, and the marathon all in the same Olympic Games. Now, the reason why it'll never be done again is because nobody will be able to win the marathon in the same Olympic Games they win those other two races. 5,000, 10,000 meters could still be won in the same Olympics by the same guys. As a matter of fact, it'll probably be done again uh, in 2016 this year. It was done in 2012, as a matter of fact, by Mo Farah. The marathon, on the other hand, in 1952 was not a super specialized event and not a whole lot of people did it. Today, it's a highly specialized event. It's so specialized and you have to be so precisely trained for it that it's virtually impossible to be simultaneously in good enough shape to win the 5,000, 10,000 and also to win the marathon. Uh, To say nothing of the fatigue that you would be bringing out of the 5,000, 10,000 meter rounds and then into the marathon itself. Uh, Anyway... uh, they, he was asked by a reporter following his marathon. Uh, it was his first ever marathon, by the way. Uh, asked by a reporter, how do you feel after the marathon there? How do you feel after this remarkable achievement that you just did? And he said, I was completely exhausted, but it was the most pleasant exhaustion I've ever felt. And I think that that's what we're all looking for when we do endurance sports. We're looking for that most pleasant exhaustion, that completely spent feeling that Knowledge that you could do nothing physically more to go any faster or to dig any deeper into yourself, but yet the concomitant satisfaction knowing that you've just accomplished something worthwhile, that you've just achieved a goal, that combination of pleasantness and exhaustion um, is what we're always chasing in endurance sports.
Last word on this podcast is about a guy named Jack Johnstone. Uh, Jack Johnstone, as many people saw, died this past week at about age 80. Jack Johnstone was the founder of triathlon. Now, it seems funny to me to actually talk about a founder of triathlon because you think about all the other sports and you can't really say who the founder of running was because it was never really founded. Um, But Jack Johnstone, when he was about 40 years old, went out with a couple of friends and his wife, about 50 people, on a Wednesday afternoon after work and decided to pull together a race where they would run for a little while, then bike for a little while, then swim for a little while, then run some more, and, and they actually finished with swimming. Um, and and that became the first triathlon. And they didn't really think it'd catch on. They thought it was sort of a quirky thing to do after work. Uh, and in fact, more than 2 million people around the world finished triathlons last year. So rest in peace to Jack Johnstone. Um he was very influential in actually creating the sort of sport that we have today. Jack Johnstone didn't win that first race. He was in the middle of the pack somewhere. Um, he was doing it for the satisfaction and for the challenge. And I think as a result of his being the founder of the sport, that's the reason why today in triathlon, there's still, I think, a very abiding respect for everybody who does it, regardless of the speed at which they get to the finish line. And that's something I very much appreciate about triathlon. I was discussing it with my friend Susie on Facebook this week. Um, Also, I I happened across a quotation, um, and it was mentioned on NPR as well, uh, from a blog that he wrote in 2008, uh, where he was talking about that first triathlon. And he said, quote, As I dismounted my bike and tried to run, my legs felt like they didn't belong to my body. I let out a moan of anguish and remember someone yelling to me, well, it was your idea, unquote. And that's something I think we can all relate to. And that brings us to the end of episode two. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Pleasant Podcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash pleasant podcast. Check out the show notes on our blog at mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com. Also, don't forget to follow ITL Coaching on Twitter, at ITL Coaching. Check them out on Facebook at facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance. And, of course, on the website at itlcoaching.com. I wrote a blog post on the itlcoaching.com website this week. Next week, we have an interview with Will Kramer, who is the manager at West Stride Shoes. We're going to be talking about the... 2016 in shoes Uh, so if you have questions about shoes that you want to have will address please put those on our website and on our blog otherwise check in with us let us know how we're doing and uh, tell us what you'd like to hear a little bit more of thanks again for joining us we'll see you next week